Welcome to Spelunking with Plato, a podcast devoted to conversations about liberal education, hosted by the University of St. Thomas's School of Arts and Sciences. Here, students and faculty are called, through the light of faith in the Catholic intellectual tradition, to ascend from Plato's cave, bringing others with them to a vision of the good and a life of human flourishing. Welcome to our listeners. Today we have the great pleasure of a conversation with Professor Clint Brand, an associate professor in the English department at the University of St. Thomas here in Houston. Professor Brand has served as the chair of the department for many years and is beloved by the students and deeply respected by his colleagues, not only in the English department, but also across the university. Given the history of the strife between poets and philosophers, I was delighted to learn that this professor of poetry, of literature, is held in such high regard by the philosophers. <laughs> After the first five minutes of our first conversation, I understood why. Professor Brand earned his BA at the University of Dallas and received his PhD in English literature from Vanderbilt University. He has a long list of publications and journals across and beyond the discipline. In 2015, Pope Francis named Professor Brand a Knight of the Pontifical Equestrian Order of St. Gregory the Great. So yes, we have a knight today <laughs> here in, um, for this conversation. Given all of this, it is not unfitting that we begin our series of conversations on liberal learning with Professor Brand. And we are beginning with Cardinal Newman on this, his feast day. So thank you for, for stopping by. Well, thank you, George, for having me. It's a delight and, and, and all the more delightful in the providence or coincidence that this happens to be uh, the celebration of the feast of St. John Henry Newman, the first feast since his canonization in October of 13th last year. So it's yeah. wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's a great day. It's a great day. So we'll, we'll talk about Newman, but we'll also um, range a bit. Okay. Um, so, uh, and so um, could you say a bit about Newman's importance for our understanding of liberal learning, liberal education? What is Newman's place within that, generally speaking? Well, Newman, of course, is the author of the idea of a university, um, offers the charter for Catholic liberal education in the modern world, and in some ways the fullest articulation of what a liberal arts education is, um, going back to the founding of the University of Paris, um, what, in the 11th century, um, and it took that long for a figure like Newman to come along and to synthesize uh, what a liberal arts education was all about, and to do so, especially in the challenges of the modern world. So I think he's uh, an indispensable point of reference in thinking about Catholic education, liberal arts education, the modern university. Yeah, that's interesting. And was he successful, ultimately, in founding that university? Oh, he was not successful at all. It, 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 it was a disastrous enterprise. He was appointed rector of a new Catholic university to be uh, established in Dublin and worked assiduously uh, to organize, to found the curriculum. He delivered these lectures over a number of years before their publication in 1873, I believe. Uh, but the, what became known as University College Dublin uh, foundered uh, owing largely to the petty and meddlesome interference of the Irish bishops and so it never quite lived up right. uh, to Newman's hopes right. and dreams. So the actual enterprise was a source of great frustration for him. But he went right. on to found the uh, Birmingham Oratory and the Oratory School, 
um, at Birmingham where he could uh, develop and pursue his cherished ideas. So it wasn't a success in right. terms of the foundation of the university, but in God's economy, nothing is wasted. And uh, Newman gave us you know, words and ideas that have shaped reflection on what education means, what Catholic education means, and especially what a liberal education is all about. That's right. Well, I'm going to mention a book. I think we've talked about this before. Um, it's called The Making of Men. Yes. Um, and um, published by Grace Wing Press. And it's, it's an account of sort of, if you will, the, 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 the hidden part of that founding. There are accounts in there of him having to deal with truant students who, yes. who got drunk and yelled out the window at the passing nobility. <laughs> you know, I mean, we think of him as just sitting at his desk writing the idea of a university, but he was involved in the nitty-gritty. Of course. Um, he had to write, level. I guess, the student life policies yes. in the university. Yes. There's a student handbook in there in that, in that appendix. So he, um, and then for it to sort of go down in flames. Um, and, and yet from that, we have the idea of a university, which has influenced so many people and so many institutions. Oh, absolutely. And it's a book worth revisiting. Um, it's not an easy book. It's a dense book. There's a lot going on. Um, and I think in particular, it's important to read beyond the first set of discourses. Mm -hmm. The early discourses are magnificent in terms of their logic, their argumentation, uh, their polish and refinement. But it's the second set of discourses on university subjects Right. that I think opens up a vista of understanding, especially you know about what I hold near and dear, that is to say the cultivation of the imagination and the study right. of literature and the role of poetry um, broadly conceived uh, within university studies. Yeah. Right. So you have to make sure you have the, an edition that includes that. I think, unfortunately, there have been editions published. That Absolutely. Those. And, and Newman is too often anthologized right. in extracts right. and excerpts that, that you know, are wonderful, but they don't give the full conspectus of his thought because he's supple and he's sinuous and there are tentacles to his thought that reach in all sorts of directions. Right. So Newman, you have to beware quoting Newman out of that rich context, it seems to me. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Exactly. Well, um, it's easy to think of Newman as, as the author of the idea of a university or as a theologian, mm -hmm. um, as the, uh, the person who wrote The Development of Doctrine. You mm -hmm. know? Um, and I think today... Um, St. Vincent was in there for the Office of Readings this morning, interestingly yes. enough. So um, I, I don't think that, was, that wasn't planned, but that's, no, how, that's but, how it worked but, out. So um, it, it's, he's known for all these things, but he was also a novelist and a he poet. He was a novelist. Can you he say something about that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it was late in life uh, that one of Newman's friends uh, wrote him and mentioned that he was already widely revered as a saint. And he answered back, he said, with typical self-deprecating modesty, he said, I have no tendency to be a saint. Saints are not literary men. They do not love the classics. They do not write tales. Uh, Newman loved the classics. He wrote tales. His first book as a Catholic, 1848, was a semi-autobiographical novel called Loss and Gain, the story of a convert. Uh, and it was an imaginative dress rehearsal for what later became the Apologia Pro Vita Sua, his great uh, biography, autobiography, um, which is a monument of English literature. Uh, Newman, of course, is revered as a theologian, as a preacher, but he always thought of himself as a literary man, a man who loved the classics, a man who wrote tales, um, a poet. 
um, a rhetorician, um, a stylist. And uh, I think we can't lose sight of that as much as we might be engaged uh, with the depth of his theological reflection, um, his contribution to uh, a historical and psychological understanding of the faith to rekindle right. the sources of belief in the modern world, how he wrestled with problems of religious epistemology in the modern world in his masterpiece, philosophically speaking, yeah. an essay in the aid of the grammar of ascent. So he's a multidimensional figure. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, and your, your reference to him thinking of himself not as a saint reminds me of the, was it the dream of, the St. Jerome have the dream in which he was accused of being a Ciceronian? Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, and there's a long history yeah, of, of, of uh, literary saints, you know, wrestling with their affection for right. literature in relationship to the highest things. Yes. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, you know, when I was introducing you, I mentioned the struggle uh, between the poets and the philosophers. Yes. You know, the... Um, you know, Homer sometimes didn't get the fair end of the deal in the Republic and in other, other mm -hmm. authors, and yet Plato's work is very poetic in many ways. Um, so how does poetry, how does literature fit into this, this idea of the university and the role of the liberal arts? Um, you know, we talk a lot about faith and reason. We're, you know, at the University of St. Thomas campus, my office is located between the chapel, which, you know, represents faith, and the library, which stands for reason. I think I'm, I'm geographically placed a little closer to reason than I am to faith, um, right. um, and just in terms of my, where my office is. Um, but this, that, this has a great deal of symbolic value to our students and to our university community. Um, where does the imagination fit into this? Is it is it just some sort of preparation that, that it really doesn't mean very much? What, what is, what is its, its function? You've written about this, I think, or spoken about it. I've written about it. I've spoken about it. I'm endlessly intrigued with that, with that very question. Uh, and it seems to me the idea of a university is, is, is a good point of reference, uh, or rather a point of departure for engaging Newman's other writings on this very question, including a remarkable essay that hasn't received as much attention as it deserves, 1829 essay, titled On Poetry with Reference to Aristotle's Poetics, uh, in which Newman addresses this very concern. Uh, but in his characteristically supple, sinuous way that doesn't yield all of its value on a cursory reading, right? I find Newman a writer that you have to come back to repeatedly again and again with ever-expanding sense of, of, of the context, the richness of, of his particular language, his vocabulary. Um, but I think we might gain some foothold on that question just by looking at the table of contents of the idea of a university. Part one, university teaching, of course, is famous for its affirmation of the role of theology um, in completing the circle of the science, uh, its affirmation of knowledge as a good before it's a use, um, its... Uh, assertion of philosophy as the science of sciences, and this gives us, you know, a kind of orientation. But it's part two, university subjects, which begins with the discourse on Christianity and letters. The second discourse is on literature. The third is on Catholic literature in the English tongue. And then the fourth on elementary studies is a review of the trivium, essentially, right. especially grammar and rhetoric, uh, even more than logic. And in the idea of a university as a whole, word for word, 
there is a greater, more extended discussion of imagination, literature, um, as propedeutic to philosophy and theology, and as a means of kindling, kindling, really energizing reason for the sake of belief. Belief as real assent, or what Newman also called imaginative assent, as distinct from merely notional assent. It is right. the imagination for Newman that is the conduit of knowledge carried to the heart for persuasive and motivating effects. And this stands out in his writings again and again and again. You know, there are these famous quotations uh, from Newman. The heart is commonly reached not through reason, right. not through reason alone, but through the imagination by means of direct impressions. Um, literature, he says, does not argue but declaims and insinuates. It is multiform and versatile. It persuades instead of convincing. It carries captive. It appeals to the imagination, to the stimulus of curiosity. It makes its way by means of gaiety, satire, romance, the beautiful, the pleasurable. Um, and this is kind of a golden thread running through the idea of a university, certainly the second set of discourses, and Newman's other writings. Uh, Newman, I think, would have concurred with C.S. Lewis in affirming that reason is the natural organ of truth, but imagination is the organ of meaning. Um, and we all know what happens when the apprehension of truth and the apprehension of meaning diverge, right? right. Um, we can become captive to meanings that aren't truthful, and then sometimes our grasp of truth can lack in meaning, motivating effect. And right. Newman is keenly interested throughout in, in bringing these two together. Right. That's interesting. Um, so I, I think, I don't remember which work it was by Kierkegaard, but I think he famously said that if Luther were to return um, in his own day, he would preach a gospel of works mm -hmm. because... Um, Things that now it was cheap grace that was the form exactly. of Christianity, and, and um, I wonder if Newman were to return today, mm -hmm. um, one would never wish upon him <laughs> <laughs> the tasks that he undertook in his life. But um, if he were to reflect on higher education, um, the university experience, um, Catholic higher education, um, what 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 might that prescription look like? What discourses might he take up that might be different from the ones he took up in the past? Well, that's an excellent question. Um, one doesn't know. I mean, Newman, of course, is writing out of a 19th century context, and he is writing out of his own formative experience at Oxford University um, with a curriculum in many respects stretching back to the Middle Ages um, and a curriculum that was saturated in literature, which he conceived broadly as embracing most of the humanities. And indeed, it was uh, saturation in the classics, the Greek and Roman classics, uh, but also in the history of vernacular English literature um, that supported and sustained him. And in that second part of the discourses, he could largely assume or take for granted right. that uh, the foundation, indeed the substance uh, of the curriculum would be highly literary. You can't assume that or take mm. any of that for granted right. today. And I think Newman might be challenged in our cultural climate 
to give to the question of literature and the imagination, the same kind of focused, um, brilliantly, shrewdly logical treatment that he gave to theology and philosophy um, as completing the circle of the science, as the sciences of the sciences. He didn't really have to do that in the second set of discourses. Mm -hmm. um, he sort of let his hair down. He's more relaxed. He goes on, you know, had this wonderful survey of literary history from Homer to Shakespeare right. up until the 19th century. Uh, in our current climate, um, it seems to me that the cultivation of the imagination uh, has been neglected and needs to be rediscovered in a way, especially as the imagination uh, has been coarsened, debased, you know, and in many cases corrupted uh, by popular culture, media culture, right. uh, internet, movies, television. Um, we can't even assume that people read books today. I can't even assume that my students read books today, aside from what's assigned in right. class. So the culture of the book and the life of reading um, is imperiled today, as it certainly wasn't in Newman's time. And I think, you know, with his prescience um, and his focus on the current moment, he would be keenly aware of those challenges and no doubt would speak to them. Um, right. That's, that's interesting. Well, if, if I could, I, I want to um, just, I'm going to read a little something that, that um, you shared with me earlier sure. um, that I, I think we can, we can also, that I think ties into this. Um, and I, I want to introduce this idea of, of um, symbolic interpretation and understanding. And sure. Um, here's what I have. If faith and reason are the two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth, and that, by the way, is the opening of line of Fides et Ratio by John Paul II, what can we say of the imagination? And where does the study of literature fit into the physiology of flight? What an amazing <laughs> image. That's great. What does a literary education bring to the school of aviation at a Catholic university? I would suggest that the stewardship of language and the formation of the imagination, together with the habits of symbolic interpretation and understanding, give to the wings of faith and reason bones, muscles, and feathers, such that these wings might rise and soar to transcendent truth. Mm -hmm. Could you say a bit more about that? Oh, my goodness, yeah. And you pick any of those. <laughs> there, there's, there's enough there for several conversations. Um, um, the symbolic, I think the idea of the symbolic interpretation understanding and those habits. Right, right, right. Uh, and I think it ultimately goes back to an understanding of the nature of language itself. Okay. That language is inherently analogical and metaphorical, right? Language um, is encoded, as it were, to link, to bridge diverse spheres of existence. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote brilliantly uh, on this subject, Owen Barfield. It was his life's passion. And Owen Barfield was always taken with the example of the word uh, spirit. Uh, in Hebrew, ruach. Uh, in Greek, pneuma. In Latin, spiritus. And the way in which that word simultaneously designates breath, wind, yet it points toward that which is immaterial, that which is invisible, that which right. is otherwise ineffable. And understanding, tapping into the metaphorical and analogical function of language itself, we can come to perceive symbolic understanding as the embodiment of concrete universals. And those concrete universals, a grasp of them through the literary imagination, is a preparation for the gospel a mode of understanding revelation itself. Newman writes brilliantly on the Bible as a monument of 
literature. Um, and it is the way in which the literary imagination mediates between the specificity of history and the universality of philosophy by way of these concrete universals. And for Newman, I believe, it's the person of Jesus Christ who's the ultimate supreme concrete universal. And out of the particularity of God's revelation to Israel, um, we have a gospel of universal significance made for all mankind. Right. Yeah. I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, that's, no, that's, uh, yeah. that's, that's, that's really great. Well, I think that, that brings a number of things together here. I mean, th this idea that it is the, um, as, you, as you called it, um, sort of the sinews, if you will, the bones, the muscles and feathers um, is, I think, a, a powerful image. Um, because it would be easy just to dismiss um, the role of literature um, in the life of faith. We've got to get to the theology and the, we've got to get the philosophy first and the theology and then everything else will be just fine, right? Of course. Um, and, uh, you know, I think when you, when we read Dante, sometimes that's the tendency um, is, is to, we, we're mining Dante for the, for the theology and the philosophy and mm -hmm. the side of the literature. Mm -hmm. But the theology, the philosophy comes alive, right? I mean, it's rendered vital. It's rendered compelling in the story, in the narrative, in the play of metaphorical and analogical and figurative language. It really does. Uh, Newman argues in the second discourse of the second part of the idea of the university on literature um, that um, it will not answer to make light of literature or to neglect its study because of the complementarity between faith and reason. He examines how faith operates and becomes active by means of reason, but reason itself must be kindled by the imagination, quickened by literature, um, such that thought can um, burst forth from the soil of language, reaching toward the light that transfigures understanding. And language, the imagination, literature becomes that seedbed, as it were, um, the habitat for an authentic liberal education, uh, yeah. in Newman's view. Yeah, and you mentioned narrative just a moment ago, too. Yes. That seems to be essential as well. I mean, when we're reading Dante, we're, and you've been teaching Dante recently. For a long time, yes, um, yes, every and, semester. <laughs> so the, um, the, you know, the unfolding of the, of the philosophy and the theology within the Divine Comedy, it's unfolding within narrative yes. of, of a man's story, which is our story. He it's our story, claims. exactly. So mm -hmm. um, to what extent might that prepare the reader, open mm -hmm. the reader, Mm -hmm. to the philosophy and theology contained therein because of the narrative. Oh, I think so. Just within the very structure of the Divine Comedy, moving from the Inferno through the Purgatorio, through the Pedadiso, we experience at each level um, a kind of challenge, but also transfiguration of our imaginative faculties for understanding philosophic ideas, theological teaching, doctrine, um, in a persuasive and motivating way. At the very beginning of the Inferno, Dante finds himself in limbo with Plato and Aristotle. Um, Homer, Virgil himself, is an inhabitant of limbo. And upon examination, limbo, the first circle of hell, looks like the Elysian fields of classical mythology, which was the height right. of the classical imagination. And all the damned in hell sink to 
the level of the corruption of their imagination. Then in the purgatorio, right, we experience a kind of baptism of the imagination, especially through liturgical poetry, as the different exactly. groups of the penitents on each of the terraces, right, uh, endure uh, their purification and their cleansing. But they're singing. They're singing, and they're singing poems. They're singing psalms. They're singing prayers and canticles from the liturgy. Um, and it is this transfiguration of the imagination that's conducted. Then we get to the Paradiso, right, where we experience what Dante calls transhumanization, mm -hmm. where we move through um, signs, uh, symbols, to uh, the truth beyond them, right? To use Newman's phrase in the dream of Drontius, Drontius, in a similar way, uh, passes through a sequence of dreams, dreams that are true but enigmatical, rising from the sensory experience of the imagination to a symbolic uh, exercise of the imagination, uh, which, as it were, mediates between time and eternity, the visible and the invisible, uh, the here and now and what's beyond. And without the mediation of the imagination, thus disciplined, thus cultivated and refined, we cannot move uh, meaningfully from reason as a mode of logic and dialectical demonstration to the full apprehension, uh, the life of faith. That's a pretty good case. You think so? <laughs> I don't know. That's, I don't know. That's pretty good. Are you an English professor? It's breezing over a lot of ground there. Yeah. That's kind of. I'm sorry. You're trying to win me over. Um, well, I, I think you may have brought a, um, something for us, a bit of music or a, well, bit thank of, you. a bit of poetry here at the end. Do you have anything you'd like to share? Uh, well, I do. I, I, I was just thinking that this morning about what might work in this context, and it, it just fell into my mind um, a, a wonderful poem, a dense sonnet, by Gerard Manley Hopkins that I think sums up the nature of poetry, literature, and the imagination as what he calls the fine delight that fathers thought um, in a way that's central to the nature of a liberal arts education. Um, as I say, it's a dense but wonderfully musical poem that uh, gives poetic expression, uh, real eloquent expression, uh, to what I'm fumbling here <laughs> to articulate, uh, English professor though I am. So I could read this poem if you that like. That would be yeah, wonderful. Yeah. That would be wonderful. The fine delight that fathers thought, the strong spur live and lancing like the blowpipe flame, breathes once and quenched, quenched faster than it came, leaves yet the mind a mother of immortal song, Nine months she then, nay years, nine years she long. Within her wares, bears, cares, and molds the same. The widow of an insight lost she lives, with aim now known and hand at work now never wrong. Sweet fire, the sire of muse, my soul needs this. I want the one rapture of an inspiration, Oh, then, if in my lagging lines you miss the roll, the rise, the carol, the creation, my winter world that scarcely breathes that bliss now yields you, with some sighs, our explanation. Thank you. 
You're welcome. My pleasure. <laughs> it was a pleasure uh, to have this conversation, and I will definitely do this again soon. Okay, I look forward okay. to it. All right. Thank, Thank you, George. You. All right, sure. Bye-bye.